Welcome to Django's News and Updates podcast, the accompanying podcast to Django's blog and updates email. These are the updates for the 28 days to the 22nd of February 2014. The latest official version of Django is 1.6.2 and the current production versions of Python are 2.7.6 and 3.3.4. This podcast provides brief coverage of the current activity in the Django community. In this episode, I'll be talking about the new releases. I talked to both Russell Keith McGee and Amrick Augustin about the app loading refactor, one of the most interesting big features in the new release. I'll be talking news and I'll have the dev list summary at the end. First up, security. There were no obvious Django-specific security updates during this time, but if you're using Python 3.3.3, You should upgrade to Python 3.3.4 because there are a bunch of security fixes along with the normal bug fixes that were part of this release. Recent releases. Jacob Kaplan-Moss posted on February 6, 2014 two minor releases. Firstly, Django 1.6.2. This is the official latest stable version of Django. This is the latest bug fix release in the 1.6 series and it fixes about a dozen small 1.6.1 bugs. Also announced was Django 1.7 Alpha 2. This is the second alpha release for Django 1.7 after they discovered a bad interaction between the changes to the way that apps are loaded and to the new systems check framework. Because these changes made 1.7 Alpha 1 quite unstable, they're taking the step of releasing a second alpha. Announced on the 10th of February was Python 3.3.4. This release fixes several security holes and a lot of overall bug fixes that were found in Python 3.3.3. And announced on the 23rd of February was a Python 3.4.0 release candidate too. And this includes a lot of improvements, including hundreds of small improvements and bug fixes. Though this is not suitable for production environments, of course. Some popular Django packages, that's according to the Django Packages website anyway, had recent upgrades too. So listen out for anything that you might use. So there was Raven, Django Celery, Django Model Utils, Django Grappelli and PyCharm all had recent new releases. the tremendous good fortune of talking to both Russell Keith McGee and Amrak Augustin about the new app loading refactor. This is a bit of an interesting part of the Django core to understand and I thought it was best to ask the people who are actually involved with it. So I started by asking Russell about the history of this refactor. Good evening. Hello, Russ. Well, the way that apps are loaded in Django is being refactored at the moment, and there's a reason and a story as to how this is and why this is. Well, gather round, children. Uh, <laughs> gather round, Grandpa's old armchair. Um, so, yeah, app reloading is is a very, very old ticket in Django's history. So, for those reading and following along at home, it's ticket thirty five ninety one, or at least that was the ticket that became the placeholder for all this stuff. If you actually go back and read the ticket itself or look at the original ticket, it doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance to what it ended up representing. So was uh, um, what version of Django would that have been around? Uh, and wow, if that probably is, it would be 0.96 probably, so it's pre-version 1.0. Okay. Um, I'd have to check the exact dates to say whether it was before we put out the 0.96 
you know, the magic removal, yeah. including release. Yeah, that's what was the essence of my question, I think. Yeah, no, I, I think it was after that. Look at the dates. I think it was after that, but before, definitely before 1.0. So, yeah, so that ticket was raised originally. Uh, like, the original feature request, it was, it was actually a relatively simple one. It's the idea that you've got this admin, you've got the admin representing your apps, and inside your apps you have models. Your models have a meta class, and in that meta class you can say, this is the name of my model, this is the verbose name, this is the verbose name plural of my model, and, and in most, in most importantly, they can be translated. So if you've got a, uh, you know, a book model, you can translate into French, into Libre, or whatever, no, whatever the appropriate... Um, book metaphor or you know, descriptor is there in the translation. Yeah. But that book is inside a, an app called library or something. Um, you can't translate library. There's no hook to let you translate the app label or the, you know, the, the name of your application into other languages. Oh, okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a very simple base starting point, which then sort of became, well, hang on, if we're going to have a translatable app name, then we also need to have a wrapper object that represents what the app is. Okay, so that was the beginning of the ticket was to translate the app name. Yes, so that, that's that's all the original, and that's what the ticket basically describes. The ticket 3591 is literally add support for custom app labels and verbose name. Okay. Um, and the, the original discussions was all about how do we you know, tie a translation for the name of your app into, into admin, mostly specifically for admin, so that it could be visualised in admin as a translated name rather than having someone's completely arbitrary application name, yeah. which is, which is yeah. essentially a Python namespace at that point. It's not so actually a useful name. I'm suspecting that this got complicated. It got very complicated very quickly because there's, there's a series of um, overlapping issues that come into that, and there's also a huge amount of bike shedding and a huge amount of... Um, you know, just these, oh, if we just add this one other little thing um, and all of a sudden it becomes this mammoth feature. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of what America has done just recently is really stripping back what is the absolute minimum we have to do to satisfy this requirement. Yeah. And then we'll tackle all the other stuff later once we know we've got this base thing in place. Yeah. I mean, he, one of his comments was that a lot of other tickets since then have been marked as a duplicate of this and so its scope is now outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. So if if it and and this was actually a criticism that got levelled at me personally, and and I completely fairly, I'll, I'll add, um, and to a lot of other people about who were talking about this ticket, that, that any problem you came across at Django in this sort of vaguely touching application space got reclosed as a as a, as a duplicate of thirty five ninety one because well that was going to be the ticket that solved everything, and that in a lot of respects actually slowed down progress. So I, mean, okay. I, I have to wear, I have to wear a certain amount of responsibility. Is there a clean definition of what everything is in that context? Uh, everything in in what sense? Uh, sorry, you, you oh, said... all all the things that are that are possibly even tangentially related to this. Yeah. Not not yeah. a good single one. The, so the best the best one that really exists is uh, Imeric's most recent mailing list post, sort of describing this is what potentially could be in here, and this is what I'm actually going to look at. Um, that's probably that, that's it's very much post facto of him going back reading all the mailing lists and the and all the posts and the discussions and whatnot that could be clearly identified as tied to thirty five ninety one. Um, and pulling it together into, right, this is what I'm actually going to do. So, so back to what the complications of... So, yeah, okay, so yeah. there's a couple of complications, some of which have actually been subsequently fixed, um, and as a result of being fixed, we don't realise the problem no longer exists, which means the, you know, this gets a bit complicated, and again, ah. the tarball keeps rolling. Yeah. But the, the root of the problem comes in that internal to Django, we have this thing which is called the app cache, 
which is essentially the list of when you create a model, when you instantiate a model, that model has to be registered with Django so that Django's internals have the ability to reflect as to what models are available. You know, the reason admin can do what it does is because it has had registered with it models that exist. And a reason that things like all the foreign key lookups and validating that foreign keys are all okay is based around the fact that Django internally knows what models are available and therefore it knows what foreign keys it can, the models can be related to and whether names will clash and things like that. So internally we have this app cache, but because of Python's model loading process or module loading process, there's all sorts of potential for circular relations and circular dependencies and what have you. you know, just internal to a model, you have to be able to say, you know, here is a foreign key, simple example would be a, you know, a many-to-many with a through table. You've got two models and the through table. There is no way to structure though, or put those three models in a file such that one doesn't refer to a model that hasn't been defined yet. Right. So you have to have forward references. And as soon as you've got forward references, you need to have a placeholder that is going to be later subbed in with something else. And then that gets even more complicated when you're dealing with Python's own module loading, where the fact that you've done from application one import models has started another model's import process, which is referring back to the application that you're currently trying to load and register its models for. So not only are you dealing with forward references in models, you're dealing with forward references in the Python module namespace that are not yet resolved but will be resolved as part of the later parsing process and all these sort of you know resolution issues that need to happen now i say no over the course of many years we've sorted all those out now malcolm tradinic did a huge amount of work uh gosh before 1.0 resolving a bunch of these little issues carl meyer has subsequently done a bunch of work simplifying a bunch of that stuff actually going back to sort of the root problem of it it was becoming an issue because of some of the earlier import processes import hacks that we were doing removing those which resolved a bunch of problems along the way but but the internal mess that was app cache still existed and that is actually also a problem for things like testing because it is essentially internally it's a borg pattern um because i was going to ask if this was more far-reaching than just admin because it's absolutely i mean the admin is the most obvious representation of the problem but you know in order to fix it for admin you've got to fix it everywhere and you know obviously this is where why it becomes a table very quickly yeah the the app cache becomes a problem because or becomes a problem in other areas because you've got things like um testing models if you've got a model that's defined in your tests file that model only exists in tests will still be registered with the app cache but then it's permanently installed in the cache, even if in a later test that app isn't being used. And you need to be able to flush the app cache in some way, and Django's never had a good way of dealing with that flushing process because so much of it was tied up in this resolution logic and fixing post-facto and all, you know, so on and so on. And a lot of Andrew's complications have been tied up with cleaning up the app cache and uh, we're dealing with migrations, and he's done a bunch of work in the app cache. And then now America's obviously done a really big refactor of the app cache subsequently. The, the other place where it actually shows up, and this, this is a sort of a slightly more tangible in terms of problems that people are likely to see, uh, was actually pointed out by Graham Dumbleton. When you are building an app and running it under, uh, under the dev server, the dev server, as part of its startup process, runs the validate command. Yeah. And the validate command goes through and imports every model that's in installed apps in the order in which they're installed apps to make sure they could all be installed and to make sure that all the models are internally self-referenced and don't have name clashes and so on and so on. However, if you use a WSGI script and you just deploy it inside you know, Apache or something like that, you know, you're not using the dev server in production. When you move to production, validate is not invoked. 
because there's no reason to invoke. You know, when yeah. you're in production, at least in principle, you should be running tested, validated code. So you have an interesting difference here between what's happening in production and what's happening in development. Yes. Because in production, there's no formal guarantee that every model's file has been loaded at the time at which the code runs. Yes. So as a result, you don't get all the import side effects of having imported every model's file. Yeah. And there are some edge cases. Admittedly, they are edge cases, and they, they don't show up unless you are doing some very interesting things with signals and circular references and what have you. But there are edge cases where if you have got the right set of signals and whatnot, you get different behavior in production versus development based purely upon the fact that validate hasn't been invoked. Now, you can work around that by manually invoking, manually importing every models file, but you know, Graham's ultimate solution was basically, well, just put validate into your WSGI file. Yeah. It runs once, and it's never, you know, it's, yeah. yes, it's an overhead on startup, but it's not that big an overhead, so yeah. you can live with it. Yeah, but it's not a very clean way of running It's not a clean thing, absolutely. And so that's this is sort of one of the big things that Imeric has cleaned up here is there now is a, or there is going to be a definable startup sequence where we know there is a predictable, everything has been imported, this is why it's been imported, this is when it was imported, and this is the order in which it will be imported. Yeah. There is one feature request in there, that, which is the translation, which is obviously the the original driving thing. The one that's the, actually the bigger driving factor for me, you know, okay, I'm Australian, I don't do a deal with translations. What I do deal with a lot, having a repeatable startup sequence, because the one thing that having a repeatable startup sequence means is that we now have a place that we can hook in startup logic, most notably where to register your signal handlers. Yes. So we now have somewhere to put your signal handlers. Yeah. And other little pieces of logic like admin.autodiscover, we now no longer require because we can have the admin app's startup sequence do autodiscover. Yeah. Yep. So it's lots of little cleanups that we can now do because we have a repeatable startup sequence. Yeah, yeah, and just have more control, I guess, as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It'd be really interesting to talk to Amrik and find out how he's gone about resolving this loading issue. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, very welcome. So I approached Amrik about talking to me in an interview and he immediately expressed to me his concerns as he's not a native English speaker and despite being incredibly articulate and having an excellent command of English. He does speak English with a very obvious accent. We went ahead with the interview anyway, which turned out to be incredibly informative and I for one feel as though I have a much better understanding of how apps are loaded in Django now. But... If you do have difficulty in interpreting accents, um, we both apologise for the accented speech and some of the sound inconsistencies, but it's really worth sticking with as it's a really fascinating dive into this feature. I'm talking to Amrik Augustine about the app refactor. Hello, Amrik. Hi. Now, we might as well leap straight in and talk about the app refactor. Um, firstly, I was going to ask you why you chose to work on this particular problem. Yes, it's an interesting story. In fact, most of the work I did for Django over the years was derived from, from business needs, things I missed for my use cases for Django. So that's why I added time zone support. That's why I rebuilt transactions. And we had this problem where we needed to register signals that would update various bits in our accounting systems when the status of some transactions would change. And while well, we hit this common problem in Django that there's no very good place to register signals. Yeah. And yeah. I knew that somehow the answer to this problem was called app loading. But for me, it was this huge project that no one would ever tackle. And then I found myself on holiday and uh, for three weeks uh, between two jobs. And while well, I wanted 
wanted to do some open source development, uh, and I started thinking, well, three weeks, what interesting project can I do? And then I remember that we had uh, had this discussion where we settled for a bad solution, and I decided I would fix it. I've spoken to both um, Russ and Andrew, and they both mentioned that um, the solution that you came up with was much lighter weight, because this is a very big ticket that's been going for a long time, and a few people have attacked it before. Can you tell us about your approach? Yes. Often when tickets end up in a dead end, that's because open source projects are driven by consensus, and when you're looking for consensus, you're trying to do everything for everyone. And another problem is that it's hard to say no. You can do this in a meeting when you have business goals, for instance, and, and estimate something is just not worth it. But that's not how we, we reason in the open source world. Uh, an important part of getting something complicated done is to define some sort of minimum viable product with as restricted goals as possible. Uh, and that's, what I, that's the first thing I try to do. And in fact, I, I don't think my solution is significantly uh, lighter weight than what was envisioned in the past. There's a few things that I cut compared to previous patches. Uh, mostly there was some meta-class uh, systems that we didn't quite need. But overall, the final patch is much more extensive than what had been done before. So this is really a, a, a matter of presenting things with restricted goals and not really a, a question of how much got done in the end. Can you tell me a bit more about the general design? Well, in fact, we have to go back about seven or eight years ago, <laughs> uh, back to the very early beginnings of Django ORM. Um, and well, what's interesting is that um, the ORM gives you uh, a lot of powerful APIs for free. Uh, for instance, when you define uh, a model that has a foreign key to, the, uh, to another model, uh, that second model can automatically get the set of related instances of the first model, go going back through the foreign key. A and that's kind of magic, because you, um, the second model doesn't know anything about the first one. It's only the first one who has the definition of the foreign key. And so at some point, Django needs to know everything about every model that exists in the project um, to set up all these relations and accesses correctly. And that, that's really where the app cache began. The app cache began to, to solve this specific problem. And since it was buried quite deep down in the RM, it stayed there. And eventually, it becomes this kind of complicated piece of code deep down the RMs that no one really understood. If you look at the app cache, it's not very complicated in itself. It's just a list of models in e each application. But the way it's populated when Django starts is complicated because that happens at import time. And you know that there are constraints on what you can do at import time. And especially, it's very easy to end up in import loops and import errors yeah. uh, when you have circular references. And this is very difficult to debug. So coming back to your original question, uh, well, wh what did I change? The, the idea of uploading has always been to give more control to the developer about the representation of application objects in the app cache. So it was well, the obvious design was to create class to store this information, and then it was mostly a matter of plugging everything together, deciding what goes into this class exactly, how it interacts with the rest of Django, and how that impacts the import sequence when the app cache gets populated. Where did you decide to put it, and what features did you put with it? Um, so th that's one of the 
decisions I made quite late in the project. Uh, I introduced really? uh, an explicit function that's available in the Django namespace. Uh, it's called setup. And when you call Django.setup without any arguments, uh, it will look at your installed app setting and populate uh, the app cache. And in practice, it's going to uh, import each of your application modules, uh, possibly with a specific application configuration class if you have specified one. And then it's going to make a second pass and import all models in order. And that process is fully deterministic. Django.setup is called either in manage.py, if you're using a management command or run server, and it's also called from whisky.py automatically. Well, we've just modified some, some internal bits of Django to make this happen. And so you know that all your applications and models get loaded early when you start a management command, the development server, or a production server. And so if you have an import error, it's going to break when you start the command of the server and not when it processes the first request. Ah, oh, okay. Previously, uh, the app cache would get populated while more or less the first time you did something with a model. Deep inside the ORM, it would ensure that the app cache w is populated because you need this before you can do anything with the model. So your, your first ORM query base would trigger the entire import process. Yeah, right. And so now it's triggered at manage or at, at a more logical part of the process. Ah, and so that's the app registry, that setup command. Yeah, so the, what the setup does precisely is that it creates uh, the global app registry. It's, uh, it's uh, an instance of the app registry class, but it's unique in a Django project running, and it populates it with information with, from every application and every model. Do you want to talk about the sequence through which you implemented this? Because looking through the very large and detailed email that you sent through to the dev list, the way that you chose to implement this was with a large number of features that you'd broken up into a big list. Did you want to talk about how that implementation process went and what you were able to achieve? Yes, it was quite interesting. I started by defining some very restricted goals that would be enough for everyone to consider my work worth merging. So it would solve some problems, but at the same time would be sufficiently small that I was sure I could get a good patch into shape, have some people review it and feel comfortable merging it. So if we look um, at the first uh, email I sent, uh, those initial goals was uh, to allow apps without a models module uh, because at, at before my work, um, whenever Django needed a reference to an application, it would use a model module as a, an identifier for the app. And it's pretty stupid because you, you have many Django apps that don't need any models. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was some kind of craft. It's not a big deal, but it needed fairly large refactoring, and that was clearly part of uploading. Yeah. Um, the second one was original a goal of uploading, if you look at the very first ticket, it was to add a, a way to customize application names in the admin. Well, since I'm not from a, an English-speaking country, it's important for me. Many people uh, in non-English-speaking countries wanted this. And, absolutely, and just if you want to arbitrarily change the name of your admin app. Yes, yeah, so, so that, that's one of the most tangible effects uh, that uh, everyone will be able to use in, in Django 1.7. Uh, it's quite easy to customize now. And the third goal is the one, I, well, it was really my original motivation for the project, uh, having the ability to, to put startup code in a reliable place, mostly to, to register signals. So as you can see, this was the absolute bare minimum. I consider that everything else could be done late. But 
as I started working through these goals, I realized that I couldn't stop halfway. There were several internals of Django that ended up in a weird state where, well, the behavior wasn't completely consistent. And so I had to go further and I had to solve several other problems, introduce a few more backwards incompatibilities, but I ended up with something that's much more consistent. And uh, especially, I had to, well, make the import sequence deterministic, introduce Django.setup, forbid having two applications with the same label, because at the moment you can have uh, Django.country.auth and foo.auth. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work perfectly well, but it's not going to crash outright either. And since everything is keyed by the label, which is auth for both sort of applications, in this case, well, it, it gets weird at some point. I had to clean that up. Yeah. And to do this, I had to provide a way to relabel applications so you can change an application label if you need to, so you can solve conflict without too much trouble. And as you can see, the ball just kept rolling and it stopped much further. So if you want to look at all this, indeed, you, well, you can read the mailing list or the tickets tagged, the uploading in track. And it's an interesting story, but it's quite long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like the original goal when you just look at them one by one they don't obviously seem related yet when you think about it then they are deeply related but obviously there's going to be all of this complication <laughs> seeing as it's affecting such seemingly disparate things. Yes, um, all, this, uh, all these goals are tied because they revolve around the app registry. So now it's called the app registry. I changed the name. Uh, it used to be called the app cache. It's a part of Django's infrastructure that you, you never dealt with in Django 1.6 and earlier. Uh, in fact, if you encountered it, uh, you, you were most likely in trouble. So only very few people had really looked at this. Uh, and it, it was one of the difficulties of the project. It was very difficult to discuss in public uh, because you had to be very familiar with Django's internal to start having a, a constructive discussion on, the, on this topic. Yeah, and so did you start writing your new setup that was formerly known as Cache from scratch? Yes, so there have been many, many patches where have written for this issue over the years. The biggest effort was a Google Summer of Code from 2011, I think, written by Arthur Koziel under the supervision of Yanis Lydell. This patch was pretty good and did most of what I wanted, but since it wasn't written by a committer, it had to be quite conservative in terms of backward compatibility, mm. and so it didn't solve some fairly fundamental problems that required breaking backward compatibility. And I, I'm especially thinking about forbidding a few things that you could do with models and you won't be able to do anymore in Django 1.7. What kind of examples of kinds of things? Well, for instance, historically, it was possible to use models that were defined in applications that weren't in your installed apps, so they wouldn't get, well, tables wouldn't be created by SyncDB or Migrate if you're using South. Mm -hmm. But the code wouldn't crash either as long as you didn't really use the models. So you, you see that you're in kind of gray area where your code obviously, well, your project obviously isn't very well configured. But you can imagine this happening with some third-party apps that have dependencies, etc., etc. Yeah, so yeah. For this specific case, I chose to use a deprecation pass. So this will only be forbidden in Django 1.9 and you will have warnings until then. But typically, that's the kind of decision that are very hard to make when you aren't a committer because most likely someone is going to whine that it's backward incompatible. The discussion is going to be complicated. So the, the other problem was that this patch 
was very difficult to merge uh, because Django has lived on for two years since then. And Preston Holmes, another committer, did, uh, did a lot of work uh, last year to try to bring it up to speed. And ultimately, he never managed to make a clean merge because just so much code had changed since then. So I started from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> and so how successful was your process of implementing your patch? So by the looks of things, you got the initial patch in quite early. Yeah, so um, this isn't the <laughs> easiest patch I've written for Django. Uh, at some point, I spent about three days banging my head against the walls uh, and didn't make any progress. Uh, that was quite depressing since I have given to myself a, a three-week frame. But eventually, I managed to finish mostly within the time I had allotted. So I tried to split my uh, work uh, in several small pull requests rather than a big one because I wanted to make sure some people would read the code and review it. And that's always easier when you have, well, a few small pull requests and a big one. And also I wanted to merge with Django as I went along so that my work wouldn't be lost if somehow I encountered a blocking problem. That looked harrowing, merging these to master and at the same time migrations are going in and seeing what happens. Well, well it was... Um, it wasn't that difficult for me because I, I chose to merge first and discuss later. Well, not really, but almost. <laughs> and so the biggest problems were for uh, Russell Kesmagi, who wanted to merge the checks framework, and he had to rework the patch significantly to, to get it merged after my changes. The um, interaction with migrations wasn't too bad because I discussed with Andrew early, and our efforts ended up being quite independent. He had made some small tweaks to the, to the app cache for migrations, but really it didn't interact a lot with what I wanted to do. Oh, that's good. So how, how successful were you over the time that you spent working on this? Well, it, it's a weird feeling, but because at some time it's, it's very fulfilling to complete something like this. Uh, and I know that it's going to be very helpful for, for the Django community at large. But on the other hand, we haven't released 1.7 yet, and people keep finding bugs. And I will start feeling good about it once we ship the final. <laughs> <laughs> about a dozen tickets uh, in the trackers that I, I know I must do something about them quickly. What are the most significant bugs outstanding at the moment? Well, uh, if we look at the bug tracker, for instance, uh, I still have an ongoing discussion with Carl Mayer about whether or not uh, we should allow modeling, uh, models in non-installed apps. He thinks we can find a better solution than just forbidding them outright. There's also a discussion, well, a variant of this discussion is that at the moment, depending on the, on the order in which you put your application in installed apps, you can run into warnings if you load a model before its application, even if the application comes later in installed apps. So it gets a bit subtle, but if we keep the current implementation, eventually people would have to order their installed apps according to the dependencies between the model and their application. So if an application contains the target of a foreign key, it would have to come before the application that contains the model that defines the foreign key, more or less. So this sounds like it's not a big deal, but asking everyone to reorder his installed app is the kind of backwards incompatibilities we do not want to inflict on the community lightly. Yeah. And while well, there's a few other things, what well, about errors you can run into when you migrate to Django 1.7, we need at least to document very well the recommended solution to fix these problems, or maybe refactor Django to be a bit more tolerant. Oh, but there's the checks framework in now, though, so hopefully that will be helpful. <laughs> 
in re reporting what you need to fix in order to move to 1.7. Hopefully that will alleviate some of that pain. <laughs> Often the pain is just a runtime error, Alfredistive isn't ready. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Which isn't a particularly helpful error. Uh, so I, I would like uh, this error to happen as rarely as possible, but it isn't completely easy. For instance, whenever an application performs a discovery over all the other applications, for instance, Haystack, which is a search application, is going to look into each application to see if it defines the search functions on its model. Well, this is most likely going to break in 1.7 because such um, uh, introspection must be done with the new app registry and you cannot do it simply by looking at install that. So this is the kind of upgrade experience that can be quite problematic and hopefully maintainers of pluggable applications that have this kind of behavior will uh, update their apps quickly. Yeah, I don't think it's a very counterintuitive upgrade though. I mean, I think when whoever wrote that introspection for Haystack must have thought, oh, I wish we could do this in a more logical way. <laughs> I wish this was more controlled. So, I mean, while it's annoying, I think it's probably a move in the right direction. Most likely it is. From the perspective of the maintainers of applications, I'm not too worried because they will see that, the, well, they will be able to do things with public and well-tested APIs now. But for end users, it may be more frustrating because it's just going to be, oh, I upgrade Django and now I'm getting an exception and I have no yeah. idea. It comes from deep inside the debug toolbar or haystack or whatever, uh, or tastypy. What am I supposed to do with this? Okay, I, I'm sticking with Django 1.6 for the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. That's really what's most interesting for me with 1.7 is that if you have your installed apps in a given order, the startup sequence is always going to look exactly the same because it won't be triggered arbitrarily by whatever model gets the first request to the database when you start your server. So if a given order works, it will keep working regardless of how much you, you change your code around. <laughs> so what other configurations and settings will be available with the new app cache, app registry? Uh, so I try to keep the list as small as possible because whenever we document a public API, we have to maintain it forever in the future. But eventually, several attributes became configurable. So w when you define an app config class, you have to provide a name uh, which is the path to the application. For instance, if you want to reconfigure the admin, you set name equals django.contrib.admin. And then there are currently three attributes that you can set to customize the application. You can set the label. So in my example, by default, it would be admin simply, but if you want to call it something else, you can change it. This is mostly useful if you have conflicts between two applications that have the same label in your existing code base, and then you can simply relabel one of them because Django 1.7 forbids conflicting lab labels. Otherwise, there isn't really a use case for changing it at the moment. Then there's verbose name. That's what shows up in the admin, in the index uh, of all applications. That's what should show up in admin docs uh, if we fix it uh, to use verbose name which it doesn't at the moment. <laughs> you can also set the path which is the, the file system path that's used when Django discovers the things inside applications. So once again there's no real reason to, to override this unless you're doing something weird with namespace packages or eggs or you want to put the, the templates and static files outside of the Python package somehow. But well, if you, if you want to play with it, it's available and it, it will be maintained in the future.
Awesome. So where is that setup going to be kept? Uh, we're trying to keep settings of py as simple as possible. So what you're going to do is that in install the apps in your settings, uh, instead of giving a pass to um, an application to its uh, root package, for instance, django.contrib.admin, uh, you're going to, to put a pass to the application class. So for instance, django.contrib.admin.apps.adminconfig. And in that case, adminconfig will be the class with the label, verbose name, pass, etc. attributes if you need. Them. So if you want to customize an application, what you're going to do is to define somewhere in your project an application configuration class. If the application provides one, you're probably going to inherit from that application configuration class. And then you're going to put the pass to your custom configuration class in, in settings.py, in installed app. That makes sense. So how will um, signals and s initialization s startup logic work? You can also override a, a method in app config classes. This method is called, is called ready. It doesn't take any argument. And when the app registry is fully populated, that is when it has imported every application and every model's module, it goes through every app config and calls the ready method. By default, it does nothing. But if you want to register signals, for instance, you would override ready in your app config class and put the registration code there. That would be great. Uh, you must be pleased that you can do that now, seeing as that was one of your original goals. Yes, that, that, well, I'm slightly ambivalent about this because I think that signals are very often misused in Django. Often beginners get a bit happy about signals and forget that could, they could simply use function calls that could be much more straightforward. That said, there's a good use case for signals. It's for when you provide an application that has events that are relevant for the project that's going to uh, embed the application. Since the application is a pluggable piece of code that doesn't have control over the project, signals are a pretty good way to provide callbacks. Uh, the lack of a place to register signals uh, has always been ridiculous. Mm. Uh, so yes, it's one of the most fundamental benefits of, of uh, uploading. Yeah, it would be really good. And I, I do tend to agree with you there. Um, <laughs> so um, one thing, can I just ask you a bit further about the fact that there are two passes over the installed app? So I'm just curious about this, but it's not done like that at the moment. So at the moment, it just loads everything once when it goes through the list of installed apps, whereas now it will load the list of installed apps and then go through that list again and actually load the Python modules. Is that right? Yeah, so at the moment there's only one pass because it, it uh, imports all models modules straight away. However, the, the process that does this can get called recursively in some cases, and so it's not necessarily one pass, but it can be one pass with multiple sub passes interleaved inside, and it gets messy quite quickly. To be totally honest, I'm not sure the two-pass mechanism is still absolutely needed uh, after all the refactorings they have done, but at some point it was important to perform the refactoring step by step. So I really introduced it to maintain backwards compatibility. Uh, yeah, so. it seems to make logical sense though. Has that been controversial amongst the people who have been discussing this and who understand the problem well? Well, I, I, I don't think many people understand the problem very well. Uh, even myself, when I talk about it, you can see that it's getting hazy <laughs> after a month or two. This isn't controversial because, well, it doesn't matter much in practice. 
<laughs> I think it, it, it does sound simpler. Is there more work that has to be done or is it close to being complete, This, uh, except for the debugging, I guess? There are some work that will need to be done in 1.9 because I've started a deprecation path for um, several APIs and we'll have to remove them eventually. There are some small pieces of work that need to be done in in country batch. I think it's only admin docs that isn't ported yet. And then it's just documentation and maybe a few more tests. So if you want to, to have the full list, all related tickets are tied with the uploading keyword in track. There's a, a pretty hefty section uh, in the release notes about the backwards compatibility. A, a large part of this is documenting uh, the exceptions that you can run into when you migrate to Django 1.7 and provide pointers on how to solve them. In some cases, the code works with Django 1.6. Django 1.7 is more strict. It will, be, it will need to be fixed, uh, even though it wasn't entirely broken. It was just not perfectly correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, of course, uh, since uh, I've introduced Django.setup, if you were using a, a plain Python script and importing Django, now you, you need to call Django.setup at the beginning of the script, otherwise the ORM isn't going to work. Then there were a few public APIs that I had to change. For instance, you could write management comments that automatically accepted app labels as arguments, and internally, this would use the models module as an identifier, and since applications can exist without a model module, I had to change this public API. So it's this sort of small changes that can affect applications. Uh, another one, of course, is that since I changed the format of installed apps, can contain paths to application classes now and not just packages. If you were iterating over installed apps, obviously that doesn't work anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, and I'm sure a lot of people are doing that. Since I'm the maintainer of the Django debug toolbar, which was affected by almost all these problems <laughs> as it's doing a lot of introspection, that one is already fixed. Uh, but there's many others out there. Yeah, it's good to ask because um, I actually noticed um, working during the week and I was looking at Django debug toolbar and I noticed suddenly your name was all over it. And I was like, oh, gosh, you've been very, very busy. <laughs> so when did you start working on that or have you always worked on that? Toolbar? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I worked on it mostly uh, last December. Uh, at the same time, I was working on uploading. Uh, I, I was a bit sad seeing that it hadn't been very well maintained for about one or two years, simply because the maintainers uh, had been uh, focusing on other projects. And uh, so I just decided to bring it a bit up to date, add tests, refactor the code, etc., etc. Well, I, I spent about two months modernizing it, and now I think it's good for a few more years. Because <laughs> did you install it for 1.7 and then just watch it explode? Uh, well, I did that at some point, obviously. But it, 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 even be before that, well, well it's, it's weird because I, myself, I, I'm not a big user of the debug toolbar, but I know that it's well, one of the most used packages for Django, if not the most used package. And we had discussions in the core team about whether we should merge it into Django.contrib or not. We decided not to, but still I, I wanted to see it into better shape, and so I just did it. When was that discussion had about merging the 
Debugtober. Well, it's been discussed now and then for uh, three years, if not more. It, it, it just comes back time and again on the, on the court team mailing list. So many other tools in other frameworks have been inspired by the original Django Debug Toolbar. So it's nice that we should at least keep our version up to date. Yes, I, I'm always very surprised when I see people doing web development and they have no way to tell how many SQL queries uh, their page just did. <laughs> We talked about some of the limitations of the new app registry, but surely there will be a lot of things that can be done now that couldn't really be done before. Do you know of any other work that is inspired to happen? The most logical follow-up would probably be cleaning the model.underscore-meter API. There is some overlap between the information you can find in an app config class and what you find in model.underscore-meter. I think model.meter should probably point to the app config object for all information related to the, to the application. It already does, but well, the information still isn't well normalized. There are other vaguely related ideas uh, but th which aren't direct consequences of uploading. For instance, people have suggested to have further possibilities to customize applications for the admin. So the idea would be to introduce an app admin like we have modeled admin. There's also been some talk about changing the DB prefix of applications, probably to give different naming schemes for table. So you, you can add a DB prefix uh, to the app config. Also, I'm, uh, once again, I'm not sure how that would fit with everything else. So these sort of ideas become a bit easier to implement now. There's a problem that's not solved in Django at the moment. It's providing application-specific settings. There are several third-party apps that attempt to make this easier. Some have suggested that these settings could go into the app config object. I'm not entirely sold on this approach, but, well, maybe this could happen. Yeah, yeah, lots of cool ideas for discussion. Uh, I should ask, are you going to the upcoming conferences in Europe? Yes, I will most likely be at DjangoCon Europe and maybe even talk about this. Often it's a bit complicated to explain <laughs> just by talking so it may be clearer with slides so yeah it should be a lovely week on the island there suddenly oh i also noticed that you were also involved with proofing two scoops of django 1.6 um yes daniel and audrey um, bribed me into reviewing it by giving me a free bribed. copy of the first edition <laughs> in fact the full story is that after they gave me a, a, a copy of the version for 1.5 i felt i had to read it and send some comments so I more or less reviewed it. And so when they wrote the second edition, well, I, I did a full review and I think they must have regretted it because they, they got about 10 pages of comments. <laughs> but it was for their own good. <laughs> I bet you, Hopefully uh, they forgave me. No, no, the opposite. I'm sure your contribution is invaluable. Well, I, I, I'm also very good at bike shedding. And, uh... <laughs> no, no, but looking at the amount of code you've just written. Well, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and it's quite difficult to understand this if you just read the documentation. If you look at the, at the docs of application, it's super short. It's just the bare minimum you need to know if you want to use the feature. But there's no background on the design of the problem that is solved, etc., etc. And, and we chose to do this because we, we wanted to see how people would use applications. 
We, we didn't want to enforce this is how applications are done, this is how you use them, etc., etc. It's just this is the API you get, let's see what you do with it. And, and yes, the, the point of the framework is that you don't have to care about all this stuff, it's, it's taken care of for you. So if you're cur curious, you can, you can read or listen about it, but you, you don't really need to understand it in detail to use Django. Well, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And that was talking to Amrik Augustin about the app loading refactor that's going into Django 1.7. News. So this is just a quick compilation of news that I've gathered from Django Updates, the Python Weekly email, and Django Planet. So RevSys put out a blog post about a bookmarklet for Django debugging. This is really handy. This is a button in your browser that can convert any URL to localhost. Two books were released recently. There was two scoops of Django, best practices for Django 1.6. Two Scoops of Django 1.5 was really popular and there was a tweet on the 31st of January from Daniel Grenfield who says it's our pleasure to announce that after months of research, writing and review, Two Scoops of Django Best Practices for Django 1.6 is available. The Python Pocket reference was also released on the 22nd of January. This is for both Python 3.4 and 2.7, and it's a convenient pocket guide for quick reference. You'll find concise need-to-know information on Python type statements, special method names, built-in functions and exceptions, commonly used standard library models, and other prominent tools. This is written by Mark Lutz, who is famous for Python tutorials, learning Python, and programming Python books. There is a new Kickstarter which ends on the 14th of March, which is being run by Mark Tamlin to provide improved Postgres SQL support in Django. So this will be supporting a wider range of awesome Postgres SQL features in Django, including HStore, JSON, and full text search. His stretch goals are improved date-based lookups, Postgres-specific custom lookups for existing fields, custom indexes, and support for views and materialized views. And at time of recording, he hasn't quite reached all these stretch goals yet. There was another recent Django Tutorials Kickstarter that ended last month, and these videos have now been released on YouTube. So the coding entrepreneurs who of their $3,500 goal managed to raise $54,375 have now put up a new bunch of Try Django Tutorial videos. There are 21 of them and they're on YouTube. The next Django conference is DjangoCon AU, which is going to be held from the 13th to the 17th of May, and tickets are still available for this. It's going to be on its own island in the Mediterranean for a week during summer, and partners are welcome to attend, and there are going to be lots of activities, and you have to get a boat, so snap up to your ticket to that quickly. 
if you can go. DjangoCon Australia has been officially announced recently and that's going to be the day before PyCon AU which will be at the end of July in 2014 in Brisbane, Australia. And DjangoCon US 2014 is going to be held in Portland, Oregon on the Labor Day weekend in September. Also, did you know, thanks to Curtis Maloney and the Django Updates email, you might know Curtis as Funky Bob if you've ever been on the IRC channel, but did you know that there is a progress dashboard for Django at dashboard.djangoproject.com that has all kinds of information and about the progress of the Django code base. It's really cool, actually. Did you know that the regroup tag in templates doesn't sort your data? So this may produce multiple groups with the same group of value. However, this might be what you want. So if you have any community requests for volunteer support, sponsorship or other projects, just email scoop at djangoproject.com and it will be posted in the update email and posted here. And also these show notes are available at github slash elena dot django news podcast and these can be updated and corrected if there's anything particularly erroneous or anything that you'd like to add and that's it for the news section of this edition of the django news podcast the summary of django dev for the last four weeks will be in following and i'm elena williams thanks for listening excluding announcements and support inquiry. This is very much a summary with very little context, so can even be quite erroneous, so please read and contribute to the actual thread if there's something that's in your field of interest. This is just to give you an idea of what was discussed, just in case there's anything that you'd like to have an actual read of without having to go through and read them yourself. So the most notable discussions during this period were Google Summer of Code proposals. They're starting to come hard and fast and there was a bit of chatter about 1.7 as well as a bunch of smaller things. So let's get started. On the 11th of February, James Farrington started a post called The Unsettings Project. This project is about running Django without having a settings.py based on some discussions from the Chicago DjangoCon with Adrian and Jacob sort of ringing in and there's quite been quite a bit of discussion. Some significant core developers asked for an 1,000 foot overview of what exactly this unsettings project meant. So to quote, his explanation is that Django models should work as libraries, e.g. ORM, mail, etc. It says that from Django Conf import settings, Bootstrap undermines this. Unsettings begins a path to support the legacy structure, but still allows for the librification of Django modules. 
So apparently they have a working concept and it's on GitHub slash slash root slash where slash root as S-L-A-S-H-R-O-O-T is the username. And their implementation revolves around replacing settings with a user underscore settings decorator. An old post from the middle of September 2013 has been dug up that's entitled Changing the on-delete equals cascade default, and it was originally posted by Carl Meyer. This is a long discussion, and it was had on the ticket. There's a ticket from the same time. There's a lot of discussion has been had, and it's around the default cascade delete behavior when you delete foreign keys. I'm sure everybody is aware of this behavior and has questioned whether or not it's the right thing to do. Carl argues that the consequences of having the delete behaviour being set null or being cascade are not symmetrical, he says. In one case, a model instance with a null FK hang is hanging around that you didn't expect to still be there, and in the other, you get data loss. So uh, this conversation is brought through to today where a new ticket has been opened, number 21961, which is about the same thing. And for 1.7, Apache is hoping to get through that will support database level cascading options. There was a quick message on the 13th of February by Kent Engstrom about the documentation not being clear about data migrations. And it was basically just a ping to make these this documentation more clear about using make migrations dash dash empty. And so this documentation's been updated, so that's how you do it. If the documentation is mystifying to you, you just go and ask the Corker developer who made it. And as further proof of this, there was another one on the 12th of February that was about clarifying signals as they should be put in appconfig.ready and about the documentation of that. On the 22nd of February, Adam Kalinsky put forward a proposal of using named tuple instead of pure tuples. Florian suggested that the performance impacts of this should be assessed and both Adam and Stratos Morris made, to quote them, some unscientific benchmarks comparing the performance of unnamed tuples and pure tuples. There are a couple of really interesting benchmarking examples here and Nothing conclusive came up, though named tuples seem to be slightly slower, though Adam is exploring this more. There was a post on the 22nd of February about including images in the Django documentation by Pieter Maris. And um, this comes up occasionally, and it's a perennial problem with the docs. And the problem with putting images is in the docs is finding people who have the time and expertise to make graphics that are appropriate and actually explain any concepts and it's hard. So the conclusion is there's no good reason why they won't include images in the Django docs. It's a matter of finding somebody with the appropriate time and skills to make graphics that would be appropriate for the Django documentation. On the 16th of February, Justin Holmes posted about ticket number nine 
So ticket number nine, according to the web archive, was ad transaction support. And it dates back to the 5th of January 2006. Uh, apparently it's been deleted from track and he was like, oh, for sentimental reasons, I was wondering why it isn't still there and the conversation kind of went well. Tickets get deleted all the time and it's been implemented. On February the 13th, Adam Spence wrote in proposing using Bootstrap as the default admin theme. He's made a Django hyphen admin tools hyphen bootstrap project which implements bootstrap as the default theme for admin and was wondering if core would be interested in this basically core backed off a little bit as would be expected but it's nice to know that such a thing exists on the 13th of february there was a post called migrations and system checks by mark levin this is about the short ticket 21856, which was a release blocker, and the ticket is entitled Crash When Databases Equals Empty Dictionary. So Mark saw this ticket and he said he had a dive in and he noticed that the checks for unapplied migrations were tied to the run server command. So he said he thought to himself that this seemed more appropriate for the new system checks framework. He said, I assumed it hadn't been done this way originally because Andrew's work on migrations was running parallel to the system checks. So the system checks was actually implemented after Andrew had written all, all the code for migrations. And so he figured out while he was fixing the issue at hand, it would make sense to add this check to the new framework. So he converted the check to the current framework and it turns out that this was problematic and it made a system issue. And then there was a bit of a philosophical discussion about what should actually go in the checks framework. And, and really it's considered that this particular check for unapplied migrations is, is not a good use case for the checks framework. It's not a system-wide issue, it's only a local app issue. And so despite all of Mark's work, it was unwound and a more local solution was applied. But it's interesting to think about what kind of things should be included in the checks framework as opposed to just checked for locally. So still on checks framework, there's checks framework feedback by G-U-E-T-T-L-I on the 6th of February. He asks about whether to define an argument hint for the error class. So there's part of the checks framework, there is a new error class and a required argument for this is an error message, but the two things that are, can be returned by checking error are an error message and a hint. So he's suggesting that the hint be defined as an argument. Even if it's none, it should be hint equals none. So this turned into a discussion about where the hint should be explicitly omitted or as you know, hint equals none, or it should just be none by default and if the hint is included, it's included. Uh, the last word on this from Russell Keith McGee was the way to properly do it was for the object to accept general keyword arguments but this introduces a lot of other mess and performance problems so it's probably just going to stay is, is for the time being. On the 4th of February there was a post by Flodek about disabling constraint checks in tests. So it seems to be 
a conversation nutting out using disabling or deferring constraints, depending on your database backend, that are performed in tests. And whether this could be explicitly disabled? After a bit of discussion, he just used a try and accept in his test, to try and accept of disabled. Also on the 4th of February, Chris Wilson made a post about Django not logging very much at high verbosity levels. He talks about adding more logging and goes through what logging does and doesn't do. So Rust made two points from here and he says that perhaps higher verbosity logging should occur at the web server level and he also says you've got to be really careful about inserting more logging in case it impacts on performance. So another really old post that was dug up again during this period was about multi-tenant Django. So it's actually a post from May 2012 originally by Alec Taylor and it's about having multiple clients in the same database versus having a database per client. Basically people talked about some experiments that had run doing the same thing and there are a couple of apps out there, I don't know if these are still alive, but one's called Django Simple Multi-Tenant and one's called Django Multi-Schema, but someone mentions that the one database per client model is probably easier, though obviously as it's been brought up recently people still have an interest in having multi-tenant Django. On the 4th of February, Freenode was DDoSed. So apparently ISL still works on web chat, but the NIC serve was down, which meant that even if you could connect, that you wouldn't be able to get into any of the channels that require registration, such as hash Django, hash Django dev, hash Django core, and hash Python. But it seems to be um, a-okay, and Freenode just gets DDoSed occasionally. It's just the way of the world. So the Google Summer of Code proposals have started flowing in. In the last podcast, Russell Keith McGee gave a brief overview of the Google Summer of Code process and what they look for and how the process works and how it's administered. And it looks as though the idea has uh, gone out in certain communities there. An overview of the proposals that have been put forward that weren't pursued very greatly on the list were about error reporting, tests, aggregation notation, serializers, and there was one about the Django book, which obviously is not really code related, so is not eligible for a Google Summer of Code project. But as a point of interest, a new Django book is scheduled out on April the 15th, with the authors listed as being Adrian Holovati, Jacob Catlin-Moss and Katie Cunningham has been added to the authors, so that may be coming out in the middle of April. There was one Google Summer of Code proposal that actually did have quite a bit of discussion attached to it, and this was about switching to Ginger 2 templates proposed by Christopher Mandrella. Now, Christopher Mandrella had a Google Summer of Code project last year, which was the Checks framework, which has just gone into 1.7. And holy crap, this thread is long and deep and goes on and on and is very detailed. So 
Originally, the Jinja templating language, that's J-I-N-J-A, was based upon the Django templating language and was specifically designed to offset some of the design decisions that had been made in the Django templating language, which are known to be controversial. Armin Ronica wrote the original implementation of the Jinja template. It is common knowledge that Jinja templates perform better than native Django templating language, so the proposal was put forward that perhaps Django out of the box is compatible with Jinja too, and that Christopher was starting to look at going down the path of what would be required to make Jinja templates compatible at the core level with Django. Graphs, statistics, benchmarking code, philosophical discussions on the virtues of using different systems and different Python versions, including PyPy and all of these things for templates has been discussed. It just goes on and on about the specifics of what would need to be changed and what the exact differences between the two templating languages are. Yeah, thread is long. So that's kind of pretty much it for the dev mailing list for this period. And so that's it for the podcast. Many thanks to Adrian Holovati, who both wrote and performed the theme music for this podcast and who performed all of the other music snippets in the podcast. And he's our former BDFL. And you can buy his album as Adrian Holovati, all as one word, that's A-D-R-I-A-N-H-O-L-O-V-A-T-Y dot bandcamp. And he's given us permission to reproduce this music here. Thanks so much to Eric and to Russell for taking the time to talk to me and, and thank you for listening. I'm Elena Williams and I'll talk to you again next time.